On Wednesday, June 21st, The Washington Post hosted the second of its Addiction in America live interview series, which convenes policymakers, researchers, and healthcare experts to examine the country's opioid crisis. In a segment called Coming Clean, Solutions for Combating Addiction, former Congressman Patrick Kennedy talked one-on-one with national correspondent Mary Jordan about leaving his career in politics to tackle addiction and mental health issues as well as his latest efforts to combat the opioid epidemic in America. Let's listen. I'm Mary Jordan from the Washington Post, and I think you know who I'm with here, Patrick Kennedy. He was a congressman from Rhode Island, and now um, he's devoted his life to going around the world in our country and talking about addiction. And he's just joined the White House Commission that's uh, trying to combat this epidemic. So we're delighted to have him here. Thank you all in the room here at the Washington Post this morning. And we encourage those here and online to send in questions. It's hashtag PostLive. So um, Patrick, this matters a lot personally to you. We've heard a lot of statistics and sad, sad ones this morning. But why don't we talk about what this does to people? And maybe you could start with your own personal story. Uh, well, my uh, late grandmother on my mom's side died at the age of 61, wasn't found for a week. Uh, like most people with alcoholism, she pushed away my mother, my aunt, uh, her husband, and um, she was alone. And, and that same disease that she had passed itself to my mother, who had uh, very debilitating uh, both depression and alcoholism, which I grew up with. And, um, and my dad, of course, had all these uh, luminaries of the day come over to our house, people who were household names. And my mom would shuffle through the house, uh, clearly incapacitated from her illness. And no one would look up, and no one would look at her, and no one would say anything to her. So as a young boy, I got the very clear message that these were not things that we should talk about. And uh, I, like everyone else, was hoping and praying that my mom would go back into a room and lock the door so that she could spare us the embarrassment of being out amongst everyone uh, in our house. I had friends come over to the house to play with me when I was little. And uh, I was terrified my mom would come to the door if, if my friend's mom would ring the doorbell. And, uh, and no one talked about it. Now, my dad, uh, as everyone know, had a number of traumatic events that happened in his life. We didn't know what uh, trauma was back then until 9-11. This idea of post-traumatic stress was not something in our nomenclature. But my dad, if you wanted to find anyone who qualified for suffering from post-traumatic stress, my dad would be the guy. I mean, he, he would be like a perfect portrait of someone suffering from post-traumatic stress. And from he the, assa- from the assassinations of his two brothers, you mean? Or? <laughs> yeah, and we had, uh, until after he died, and there was all this r- stuff written about our house and how there were bulletproof vests in every closet. And I didn't think anything of it. Someone asked me, there were bulletproof vests in every closet? I said, yeah. Like, aren't there in your house, too? Like, that was, it, it was a, a, a normal... And until I was able to look back on all of it and understand what they were suffering from, and the, the, 
thing I write about in my book, A Common Struggle, is that the common aspect of it is that we don't talk about these issues. Um, I myself uh, ended up having uh, multiple addictions and um, suffering from uh, mental illness as well, uh, underlying uh, those addictions. And, um, and even though I was the sponsor of Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, the law that requires insurance companies to uh, pay for treatment of mental illness and addiction the same way they would pay, pay for any other a chronic health condition, I myself st still could not wrap my head around the fact that after I went to rehab um, that I still needed continuity of care, that I still needed chronic care management, just like I got for my asthma, because I have very, very bad asthma. I have to see my primary care a physician and, and pulmonologist all the time. But somehow my insurers were paying for my inpatient at Mayo Clinic, but weren't paying for any follow-up. And these insurance companies know better, but they don't do it. And then they complain to people like me who are trying to enforce the parity law that, well, there's all these uh, fly-by-night rehabs down in Florida that aren't giving evidence-based treatments. And I'm like, you got me. I'm with you. I'm not trying to protect them. In fact, I'd like to shut those places down because there's 90% relapse rate for people coming out of those places, there's no outcomes-based metrics, and insurance companies still have to pay for that. That's not what we want. We want chronic care, continuity of care, recovery living, and insurance companies aren't paying for that now. So we're going to go, go back to that super important... I jumped right into my policy speech. No, uh, no, uh, but this is this <laughs> Trying is to get away from having to talk about... It's, it's an know. important issue. Um, well, you, well, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. I think that um, we've heard this morning about stigma and that this still exists. And somehow, if it's in your mind, like it's not in your body. And so do you feel like there is some movement forward on that? As I think we're in denial. I think our country is in deep, deep denial. If this were an infectious disease, we'd be throwing hundreds of billions of dollars at it right now. We know what to do. We don't need any more White House policy forums. We don't need Surgeon General's reports. We don't need Washington Post forums. We know what to do. Let's talk about what to do. What needs to be done? Well, it needs to be understand it's the whole person. We need to align financial incentives. The bottom line in all of this is that we need to align financial incentives to encourage prevention, which is the best treatment of all, to encourage chronic care management and integration of the whole person, i.e. mental health and addiction needs to be treated along with all other physical health conditions. Um, so, so that's got to be our concept. And we have to understand that social determinants make a big deal. Like if you grow up in a family like Kaiser showed, where your mother or father was alcoholic in jail, lived in poverty, subject to violence, witnessed violence, you check those bars off, your trajectory in terms of vulnerability and risk goes through the roof. So it's not like we have to spend a lot of money on everybody. We've got to spend the right amount of money on those with the, the highest risk. And so spend it on prevention and chronic care. So now you're at the White House. You had your first meeting. And who, sh who showed up to that so meeting? So first of all, uh, the commission's really impressive. I mean, Governor Christie, if anybody saw his 
this video that went viral during the presidential about talking about addiction. Everybody knows Governor Christie gets it, okay, gets it. And, um, you know, we have Governor Cooper, a Democrat. We have Bertha Madras. I won't tell her party affiliation, but she works at Harvard out of McLean Hospital. You guess what her uh, party affiliation. I'm obviously Democrat. And then you've got um, Baker from Massachusetts, who's not like considered a real hardcore Trump supporter, right? You know, so the irony is you've got a commission that I think is very legitimate. But does Trump himself care? He's talked about this throughout the campaign. He said this was high, uh, high, high on his issue. And now we're going to have to talk about, you know, how do, what money is he putting up? And especially with what's going on in health care right now and perhaps slashing a Medicaid, you know, is the White House really ready to address that? Because you're one of the few people in there talking to Well. Them. You know, obviously, Medicaid is the, as I said, my opening statement at the commission was, is, was the elephant in the room. Um, and, and that was because without continuity of care, block grants, I don't want block grants. Block grants only pay for non-evidence-based treatment. Um, you don't fight cancer with block grants. It's just, uh, we got to get rid of And is block grants what's going on in the secret GOP so negotiations? They're, they're using block grants as a way of really doing what they don't want to vote on doing, and that's sharply cutting the amount of money that goes to treatment. So they say they're giving the same amount, but they're letting states to do the dirty work because states' budgets are going to crowd out the funding, and the, and the money's going to be fungible, so they use those dollars to fund other things because people with addiction and mental illness are the most unpopular of all constituencies, so they're the easiest people to drop by the wayside. But, uh, but I think here's the big thing for the president is if he's going to ask for an 18% cut for corporate taxes, I propose that the White House make an objective for our country at a minimum to reduce suicide rates and overdose rates by an equal percentage for the American people. Because if we don't put our mind to something, we're never going to start bending the curve and applying ourselves to the goal at hand. So I think when you see the suicide rates and overdose so high, and all the scientists will tell you, we can reduce those. We can do, reduce those quite dramatically. We know what to do uh, to reduce those. But if we're not making it a goal of this country to reduce those, we're never going to get to where we need to go. So I would say make the reduction in suicide and overdose the same as you make corporate taxes, the reduction in corporate taxes. And two, if we're going to repatriate hundreds of billions of dollars of overseas uh, corporate taxes, and this is the biggest public health crisis of our times, and it affects one in uh, four Americans, why not say that we're going to spend one in four dollars in repatriated uh, money and put it into this, the biggest public health epidemic of our time. And let's build the infrastructure, because you're hearing from everyone that we don't have the workforce out there, we don't have the availability out there, we don't have the telemedicine out there. Let's build that out. And with What does that, that look like? What does the... The, the, there is an epidemic, and everyone knows it. There's some encouraging things that there's bipartisanship in a town and a country that is, can't agree on anything. You are talking to, with Newt Gingrich on one of the panels you're on, right? I mean, yes, yeah. And you are with Chris Christie, and Donald Trump's brother had, had problems with this. So this, this, doesn't, is, this doesn't know any partisan boundaries. Okay. Okay? 
and people are talking. So what, what is the what? It's it, it's money that we have to watch. Where you know, if, if some of these programs are gutted, there was someone this morning said that ninety one million. Dollar, billion dollars. Ninety-one be billion dollars for opiate within the ACA. If they, if the the Republican plan plans to substitute it with the forty-five billion dollar half of really basically what the ACA provides to opiate treatment over ten years, half the dollars at a time when this epidemic is getting worse, not better. But going back to the bipartisan aspect of this, um, Speaker Gingrich and I are pushing for a $10 billion brain bond, which can be paid for uh, by slowly reducing the costs of, that are incurred from brain illnesses because of increase in understanding and research uh, of newer therapies. That's the kind of marrying both conservative and liberal points of view because Again, coming back to the dollars, if we were to put the real price tag on this uh, epidemic, we would be including the increase in child welfare costs, we'd be increasing police time, adjudication time, correction time, prison time, parole time. You know, the, the enormity of this crisis as it relates to a, a number of different budgets, but what CBO and GAO have not done, is they've not quantified across many budgets what this epidemic is doing in terms of its cost to society. If you took the true, honest, zero-based budgeting on the true cost, I think you could justify to Republicans that it's smart to have an entitlement where you can track efficacy and quality. Republicans should be about outcomes-based metrics. We ought to be about, you know, ensuring that we get our quote-unquote money's worth. And we're not paying for what works today. And we should pair up with Republicans and say, listen, you want to get accountability? We want to get more people covered? L let's get together on this. So, so, so far, Republicans and Democrats are certainly talking about this. They're certainly saying on both sides this is a, a massive issue. They are like this when it comes to how much money to spend on it, right, at least through the federal government. Where, are, where in your discussions, is there kind of hope that there's something in agreement? Is it finally to get rid of the stigma? And to, I noticed that people keep calling it a brain disease. And your hashtag is, right, it's, tell them what it is. For brain health, PJK, yeah. for brain health. And, and, you know, and stop talking about it like it's some <laughs> moral problem, as somebody earlier today said, right? I mean, what, where are you seeing agreement? Yeah, where are you when seeing you're the road active in forward? your illness, you do a lot of immoral things. And that's why people are looked down upon. And that's why those of us who've been blessed to be in recovery talk about this as a threefold illness, a physical allergy, a mental obsession, and a spiritual malady. Because if we're acting against and hurting other people, we're, we're hurting our own chances of living in recovery because we all are subject to guilt. We all have consciences. And, um, and, you know, I think that we need to have the active participation of the ecumenical community. Um, I was just with uh, Reverend and Kay Warren, fantastic people, purpose-driven life. They lost their son uh, to these illnesses. And, you know, most churches have no way of talking about these things. I was asked by my Catholic church, uh, St. Thomas and Brigantine, to speak about these issues. I was denied communion by my bishop in Rhode Island. 
wow. for not having the right kind of set of Catholic, you know, uh, checklist. And yet now I'm getting messages from the bishop uh, that I'm doing great work and that, you know, my parish priest thinks I'm great and I'm there on Sundays and, you know what I mean? But I'm just saying to you, like, the point is, like, uh, I don't know what the point is, but I just had to say that. Uh, <laughs> but, but I think one point there is that times are changing. Everyone is touched by this, and people are getting it more, and at least that is a step forward. Well, I, I, the, I, I just get approached everywhere. The, I often say, when I came back from rehab after crashing my car in the Capitol, and everybody knew I was addict, alcoholic, no one else in Congress knows where, who we are. But because I was in the newspapers all the time. So when I got to the floor, you would be amazed at how many of my colleagues grabbed me to pull me off the floor of the house to tell me their own stories because they didn't know amongst all my other colleagues which one of us was in recovery or struggling with a mental illness or addiction. And so it was a real uh, you know, eye-opener for me that, you know, in this room, there's a number of us who've been suffering. There's a number of us who've already gotten our 12-step meeting in for the day. And there's many of us who also understand, as I do, that it took both medication-assisted treatment and 12-step recovery for me to have the longest period of stability and sobriety in my life. So it's not as if it's one or the other. But the whole advocacy community is at each other's throats um, because the 12-step folks or think the MAT is an abomination. All the scientists say, yeah, but all the evidence says that MAT, medication-assisted treatment, is what is called for with this opiate crisis. And we have scant application of MAT across the country. And two-thirds of the rehabilitation centers don't even practice MAT, and yet we're paying for them. And they're in violation of all the American Society for Addiction Medicine, practices, and, and, and Wilson Compton can tell you, and Nora Volkov can tell you, I mean, if we're not offering MAT for an opiate addiction, you're not providing what the scientists tell you works. You know, I've, I've got to ask you, because your father devoted his whole life practically to health care, and when we see what's going on now, what do you think he would think about the GOP plan and ripping up Obamacare now. And then we're going to talk about what that means for addiction. Well, my dad, you know, just believed that, uh, you know, he watched my brother Teddy in the early 70s get treated for cancer. And he was standing on the same children's ward as all these other parents who were hoping their own kids could get the treatment who had to discontinue the treatment because they didn't have the financial wherewithal. And I found out later on in my life how many families came up to me and said, your father paid for all of our kids' treatment after my brother was released. Because it was <clears throat> something that he couldn't abide by the fact that he, simply because he had the money, could pay to save his son's life. But the other parents could not save their children's lives. He just said there's something morally wrong about that. And so this wasn't a policy. This was a principle. And I think he would just say, you know, how can we? And, and you know, we could go all into the economics that it doesn't actually make sense to cut people off because we know they come back through the doors sicker and more costly. 
and, the, and we all end up paying for it as a surcharge on our insurance for those of us who are fortunate enough to have private insurance. But it's an inefficient way to treat people through these ERs. The better way is to cover them and do the prevention that I spoke about earlier. But taking all that aside, it's just about um, treating others as you would want your own loved one to be treated. And then when it comes to addiction, since you know what you've been through and how hard it is, uh, what does a good prevention program look like? Well, there's evidence, you know, Wilson Compton could tell you, there's terrific um, resiliency, coping mechanism, problem-solving skills that can be brought into education. I mean, keep in mind, we focus on numeracy and literacy with our children, but we do not focus on emotional strength, resiliency, problem-solving skills, the very things that they're going to need in order to be successful. So our education system really isn't purely designed to produce the most capable, you know, uh, effective and, and uh, capable uh, students. So I, I would say that we have to do social-emotional learning. It's got to be in every, you know, class in America. And uh, there is, this isn't soft science. This is there's a lot of data out there showing it reduces the, um, the dropout. It actually improves scores in some of the worst, uh, most violent sections in, of neighborhoods in this country where they've tested you know, mindfulness and other things, coping mechanisms. They find the kids' scores go up dramatically because their amygdalas are not firing because they're fight or flight mode, which is what the brain, what's going on in the brain if they come to school and there's gunshots and their mother, father's incapacitated from drugs, alcohol, or in jail. You know, these kids have a lot that they're bringing to school. We need to help uh, prepare them. And, um, and we're so. getting a, a few questions on Twitter, a lot of questions on Twitter, but several of them about marijuana. Uh, what do you think about marijuana as, as places around the country now are, are legalizing it? I just don't want it targeting kids. And when you look at the products that are being produced by uh, the new big tobacco, it's gummy bears with, uh, you know, red, white, and blue gummy bears. Um, there's, it's like elixirs. I don't know if you guys know what elixirs Gummy are. Gummy bears with marijuana? You teach C, yeah. You're not, I'm not talking about the smoked kind. That's benign. I'm talking about the kind you put in your e-cigarette. We all see folks with their e-cigarettes around here. You dab of this uh, high THC concentrate. Um, but it's mostly the edibles. Yeah, there's all kinds of And you think they're more addictive? Well, first of all, I think there, the, we already have seen the dramatic increase in use amongst uh, teenagers. At the same time that the use of tobacco is going down, thanks to great public health efforts. We, I mean, imagine this country. We've done all this work reducing tobacco use. Bless you. And now, <laughs> now we're, we're like, oh, this is no problem. And... And it's, again, it's the targeting of kids. So I think we should have an impartial panel of medical experts just reviewing the products that are on, being sold out there and putting a stop to those products that clearly um, have a higher penetration amongst uh, kids. We do not, we should all be in agreement that kids should not be using this stuff because it affects their developing brains because it puts them at risk for 
all kinds of other addictions, including opiate addiction, and it affects their mental health dramatically. Um, and if more people use, and if there's a certain percentage that have a predisposition to having a mental illness or addiction, guess what? That percentage goes up if the larger population of those using goes up. So we just have to be very conscious as a nation what we're walking into as a nation with the quote-unquote legalization. Uh, and, but I, I think it's the commercialization is the problem. And there's no way public health is going to be able to keep pace dollar for dollar with the enormity of the budgets that the big marijuana um, corporate folks are going to have to market this stuff uh, in all kinds of ways that I think is going to jeopardize all our best prevention efforts. You know, there's one thing we can do, but if we got big marijuana just flooding with different ads that it's medical and all the rest. If it's medical, then let it go through the usual medical process. Don't be selling something out of your you know, basement, oh, it's medical, you know, uh, don't know what's in it, you know, no way of telling you how it might be spiked, don't have any sense of whether it gives you the relief that it's supposed to give you, but it's medical. I got how, how many kids, you have four kids now? Four kids. Four kids, and, and three under the age of four or something, you have a lot of little ones, right? Yes. So thinking about these little... That's why I'm fixated on gummy bears. Yeah, okay. <laughs> And I'm not kidding. Kids pick this stuff up, put it in their mouth. And it's happening. The poison control. But as we look to all our, our kids, and, and it's tough now. It's, it seems to me it's tougher, tougher now to be a kid than it ever was. There's more stuff on the market. There's more everything. Um, what would you do to fix one thing across the country to make it better and easier for kids today when it comes to addiction? Well, I think look at the whole family. If your parents are in crisis, your kids are going to be in crisis. We can't think of this as separate issues. Um, my first bill signed into law was called the Foundations for Learning Act. It never got voted on in subcommittee, full committee, or even on the floor of the House, but somehow became federal law. Had nothing to do with the fact that my dad was chairman of the conference committee <laughs> on, on education. So he airdropped it in, and basically it said that you know, if parents need support, support the parents because you're going to end up helping the kid dramatically if the parent can get the support they need. If the parent's a wreck, I don't care what you do for the kid, the kid's going to have a tough time. And we have to understand with this opiate crisis, last thing I'll say is, there is a secondary effect to this opiate crisis, and that's all the kids now who've grown up with these family members who've suffered and died as a result of this crisis. And let me finally say, suicide has not been talked about much at this forum. But you cannot divorce the suicide rate from the opiate overdose rate. And both of them are way underreported because a quarter of all coroners in this country are elected. And there's no standardization for medical examiners, if you can believe it, in this country. So everything you saw, um, if it weren't Carrie Fisher, we would have thought she died of sleep apnea. She had the extraordinary circumstance of being an uber, uber celebrity, so we found out everything else is going on. We have no clue what the true suicide rate, overdose rate here is in this country. Um, and, you know, not to be too startling, but as I said from the beginning, we're in denial in this country. If we think we can micromanage this a little bit over here and we put a little block grant for opiates over here, God bless Senator Portman for foot pushing for that. But 
But this is along the, the margins. We are moving chairs on the Titanic is our current approach to this issue. We need to fundamentally come to a different approach to how to deal with mental illness and addiction and stress management and mental health in this country. Um, unless we celebrate it, support it, the whole healthcare system, encourage it, pay for it, reimburse for it, all these other costs are going to be wet playing whack-a-mole. Diabetes is going to go up, cardiovascular disease going up, all these hypertension is going to go up, suicide is going to continue to go up. We have to make this a national priority if we expect to do anything to help change the, the nature of this illness and actually make a dent in the future uh, suicide and overdose rates. Well, I couldn't think of a better way to wrap up an amazing morning. Thank you for being so frank and honest. And, and I'm, I think a lot of people here are delighted that you're on the White House Commission. And I guess they'll be hearing over there that they're rearranging chairs on the Titanic or the, con <laughs> or the country is. Uh, uh, the focus on family, the focus on stopping denial. Um, I'm very grateful. And on behalf of the Washington Post and Washington Post Live, thank you all for listening here in the audience and those online. And we're going to be putting up clips from today at WashingtonPostLive.com and more comments about this whole amazing morning. Thank you. And thank you, Patrick thank Kennedy. You. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.